When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. I'm really excited uh, to welcome Samantha Hill today. Thank you, Samantha, first of all, for joining me on the Think About It podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, so I'm really, I'm, I'm really thrilled to talk about um, Hannah Arendt. And as I know, you have a book coming out with Reaction Books uh, on Hannah Arendt. And I've actually met you first online because you have a really am amazing uh, Twitter account, Samantha R. Hill, where you do a lot of work with on Arendt, on the archives, on documents that you found in the, terms, in the time of your research. And I just want to mention to our listeners also, you are the assistant director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College and visiting assistant professor of politics at Bard, where Arendt's husband, Heinrich Blücher, taught for a very long time. So there's a real connection. And I believe he is buried there. And is she also? Um, yes, she is, she is buried there next to him. Yeah. So there's a deep connection to Arendt, who lived in New York City mostly. And but for our listeners, you should really go and follow uh, Samantha at Samantha R Hill. You can also find her at SamanthaRoseHill.com, which is uh, your website, which has a lot of information about your other writings. And you've published Olivia books, Public Seminar, South Atlantic Quarterly, the Journal of the Hannah Arendt Center, and you have this book coming out. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you on this podcast, think about it. I had Richard Bernstein here a long time ago, like a year ago or so, who knew Arendt and who had this fantastic anecdote about meeting her at Villanova, which was really entertaining and said, and as I start us out, he said, it was the most erotic conversation he had in his life. And I asked him why, and he said in that podcast, because he'd never met anybody who cared that much about understanding how someone else thinks. Mm. And I think that's really an interesting opening into Arendt that she took this incredible interest in how other people make sense of the world. Yes, that is so beautiful. Um, when he, I had the very good fortune to go visit with him um, before lockdown a year ago as I was writing the book, the biography of RM. And he told me that story, but he didn't, he didn't give me that, that sense of um, Eros, but that's what that's, that is what we talked about. What an incredibly passionate woman she was. And she was genuinely interested in understanding she said throughout the course of her career that what drove her from a very early age, from her childhood, was this craving, was this desire to understand 
the world and experience in the world. And she had this magnificent passion for life. And it's very much connected to her Socratic spirit and the work that she did. It's also, I think, what got her into a lot of trouble <laughs> because she tried to understand why Martin Heidegger uh, joined the Nazi party. She wanted to understand why he, why his thinking was able to lead him to that place. And she wanted to understand Adolf Eichmann. She wanted to understand the traditional problem of evil, not from a theological perspective, but from that position of, of thinking and trying to understand how people make sense of the world. So I think it's, it's a beautiful place to start and opens so much. Um, yeah. It's, it's it, what you said, she, she wanted to understand how her teacher and lover, Martin Heidegger, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, from our perspective, falls victim to the fantasy that he can shape the political fate of Germany. So he wants to become kind of the philosopher to the emerging Nazi state. Hannah Arendt, who's Jewish, who is married to a Jewish scholar at that time, who ultimately will flee and barely escape Germany, then France, and then come to America. But I think this shift between a relation between philosophy and politics is really shapes a lot of her life right absolutely so she um was born in 1906 and linden hanover germany she was kicked out of her school when she was 15 years old for leading a protest against one of her teachers and a few months later her mother arranged for her to finish her studies in berlin which is where she discovered theology but she was already well-versed in Kant and was reading Jasper's work on the psychology of worldviews, which was relatively new at the time. She had learned Latin and Greek, very autodidactic. Um, and then when she was about 18, she went to study with Martin Heidegger and he was just beginning to write Being in Time. And then she wrote her dissertation with Carl Jaspers as he was writing his great three volume work, Philosophy. So her early educational experience was very much in the tradition of German philosophy. Um, and she worked between Greek theology and philosophy. And she was studying, as you said, with Martin Heidegger, who's one of the greatest political philosophers of the 20th century, also Carl Jaspers. Um, a father of German existentialism. And then she leaves. She says, <laughs> in 1933, she says, I don't want anything more to do with this milieu. Right. <laughs> and she says that in the 1964 interview with Gunther Gauss. But she feels a kind of, I want to almost say ethical imperative when she sees the burning of the Reichstag to leave the world of academia to leave the world of professional philosophy. Um, she likes to uh, use the phrase, you know, what Kant would call those professional thinkers. She says mm -hmm. the word intellectual is hateful. Um, and she said that she couldn't be a bystander. And she left the world of philosophy to do the work of political thinking. And so she wrote the, 
cheeky um, but searing little essay, Heidegger the Fox, um, trying, I think, to capture what you were describing as, you know, Heidegger, how could he get so entangled in this dream of philosophy and what it means to be a kind of uh, the, the king in the hidden realm of philosophy <laughs> that he couldn't reckon with what was happening in front of him. Um, or at least I think in the way that Arndt read it, there was a kind of fundamental failure of imagination on his part to see reality. Well, it's interesting when you said she opts and it's partly forced for a life of more active engagement. And she becomes a bit of an itinerant. She's a refugee, of course, in America, arrives under these very difficult conditions, ultimately finds some semblance of stability, but never accepts a full position or tenured position. But when you said she turns a little bit away from academic philosophy, Heidegger also does at that moment, of course. This is actually interesting what she, because one of the essays, so Samantha and I looked at this essay, Truth and Politics from 1967, which is quite interesting. She wants to say philosophy has a space in which to do thinking for itself and cannot and must not be totally overdetermined by everyday concern. When she goes into the more active, politically engaged thinking and becomes what we today consider a political philosopher, initially, in a, she wants to preserve, there is a space for philosophy to do its own thing. Absolutely. And I think this is a really important distinction that's often overlooked in some conversations around Arendt and thinking is that she's actually drawing a distinction between the Vita contemplativa and the life of the mind. And, and when she comes to write her final work on the life of the mind, she says she's joining the ranks of those who are dismantling the realm of metaphysics. She's turning away from the traditional work of philosophy as something that appeals to transcendental ideas or is the life of contemplation removed from the life of action in order to make an argument for the life of the mind. And she says, all thinking moves from experience, mm -hmm. from the experience that we have in the world. And so there's very much a place, there's a necessary space for political philosophies, as you call it, although I'm sure we could have a, a conversation about philosophy theory, political philosophy, right. aren't breaks those down, but right. um, <laughs> there's a necessary space for that, but it has to be, it has to be responding to what's happening in the world, right? mm -hmm. because if you, so if we take truth, if you have a conception of capital T truth, even a platonic conception of truth or a theory of forms, and you hold that against the world of human appearances, it can't bear upon the reality of ordinary experience. Instead, truth has to emerge from our experiences in the world. And that's where she really brings in her idea of storytelling to the importance mm -hmm. of factual truth. Mm -hmm. um, the stories we tell each other are recounting our experiences in the world. That's truth, right? It's not some other worldly ideal. It's, right. yeah. But it's interesting in this, what you're saying, and she wants to actually make a case for philosophy, but not be stuck in a kind of total removal of philosophy from the world. So there she is really following 
up to a point Heidegger and Jaspers, who are both in the 20s are kind of revolutionizing academic philosophy, probably in the wake of Nietzsche to say our experience in the world, really the world's existentialism comes from the experiential, Heidegger's moods, all of these things. We are, we are beings in the world, mm -hmm. thrown into the world long before we can distance ourselves and make sense of it. So and yeah, but Arendt's following, I would argue that Arendt's following Jaspers more closely there mm -hmm. than, than Heidegger. Um, in the sense that at the center of, of Jasper's philosophy is an understanding of conversation. So thinking for him is necessarily dialogic and something that is worldly. Whereas, although they're both Heidegger and Jasper's are concerned with the meaning of being and those and, and dealing with those traditional problems of metaphysics, for, for Heidegger, there is still a kind of turn away from being with others and thinking mm -hmm. about the ontological ground of being mm -hmm. and Dasein. But for Jaspers, we get um, a very worldly understanding of what it means to do the work of thinking and the idea that we have to make meaning. So aren't there I think philosophically is resisting the conflation of meaning with being. Yeah, that's that's a really great distinction. And what's, when you're saying she takes from Jaspers this idea that in dialogue and exchange, we actually generate truth. It's not something that we hit on ourselves and it's this thing out there and then we impart it. And then this, this essay on truth and politics, but throughout her work, exchange with others and speaking with others and being seen and heard and being misrecognized, misheard or understood. It's not simple that you just have agreement. Yeah. This, and I wonder in your work when, cause you've spent so much time in the archives also, she's such a, an incredibly committed teacher and teaching for her seemed to be a manifestation of how you actually do philosophical work and not the side job you have and then you go back to your desk. Yes, I think I think I agree with you. And I at the in the conclusion of the biography, um, I think I wrote I was trying to capture part of that. And I wrote something like, you know, if we were to place Arendt anywhere, we might say that she has joined the ranks of Jaspers and Socrates. The great teachers. The great teachers. But I think she would reject that too. Why? <laughs> Well, I don't think she wants to be placed anywhere. I think she had that kind of, you know, I don't want to belong to any club spirit about her, which many great thinkers and teachers do. Um, but she, yes, she teaching for her was an immersive experience. So there's the kind of practical side to the teaching that she did. As you mentioned earlier, she never held a tenure academic position. Um, the longest, uh, most permanent position she had was at the New School for Social Research toward the end of her life. But she often commuted between the Upper West Side and Chicago or Berkeley or Williams or Princeton. And she taught a lot. Um, she was constantly teaching um, from the publication of Origins in 1951. She really starts around 1955 until the end of her life. And in her correspondence with Jaspers and Mary McCarthy, she often talks about how 
she's exhausted and her and, and to her husband that she can't write while she's teaching um, it takes everything out of her she feels like she's constantly being exposed to other people in the public she feels right. like she's losing herself <laughs> she can't find the space she needs to think um, so she really was a passionate professor um, Jerome Cohn who is um, just one of the most marvelous yeah. uh, people that I know um, and it has really stood guard over Arendt's estate and given us her legacy in many ways. Um, he said in his, his, his speech at her funeral, his kind of oration, which, part of which was printed in the Times, that she was perhaps the last great teacher. Um, not that I'm, I have never seen you teach, Lee. <laughs> I'm, oh, sure, I'm sure you're wonderful. But, but, but I think there was a sense that she had she was, um, uh, I mean, erotic actually is the word that I would reach for there, that she had that sense of openness. She had this, it's, it's interesting, erotic, not in a, in, an, in the sense not of, sexual. Erotic, no, in the sense of like Anne Carson in her book Eros talks about that, how actually understanding something can be so thrilling Yes. It's a transformative experience. It's like encountering another person in a real way. So Eros in this way of transformative on the level, on such a deep level that it's, that's really shakes you kind of unsettles you. But I want yeah. to go back to something you said about Arendt not wanting to be in any club group identity. So the, you said that the book Origins of Totalitarianism, which kind of establishes her as a major authority on thinking through both the Soviet and Nazi rule that makes her into a kind of authority on what can happen under mass society and what is the threat of totalitarianism. But what comes out of it, it seems to me, is she wants to preserve this possibility to be herself on her own terms and not be defined. And at the same time, what you just said, always in exchange with others. Yes, yes. That, yeah, can you say a little bit more about that? Because she goes through these different moments when she's examining life under totalitarian conditions, which I think she uses as a lens to see what is the human condition in general, actually, under these extreme conditions. But then she says, I'm not easily identified with being a woman, being a Jew, being a German, being a philosopher. She just keeps on slipping out of those as assignments. Yes. Um, so I want to, the first thing I want to say is that you know, thinking about that kind of radical openness and one's disposition toward being in the world and what that means in the sense of education and thinking and giving and receiving that I can't recall the Greek word right now, but it literally means a turning about in the soul that can happen, uh, uh, which, which she used occasionally. The, you're, you're touching on, a lot of different, I think, important elements in Arendt's writing, and especially in those two, those two early works, Origins and the Human Condition. Um, and one, one place to begin would be by talking about the distinction she draws between who-ness and whatness. And for Arendt, there is a distinction between who we are, which is how we disclose 
ourselves through our speech and actions in the world. And there is what we are, which is the fact that I'm a woman, I'm Jewish, I'm white. Um, And what we are is not the same thing as who we are. Now, that doesn't mean that what we are doesn't condition our experience in the world, which informs who we are, but to reduce one to any kind of identity uh, or uh, I wanna say checkbox characteristic would be to overlook what makes them unique, Mm -hmm. what makes them uh, a fully human being. Um, And it's part of her conception of plurality. We all appear and she says this in the essay in Truth and Politics, but you know, we all appear from nowhere and we all disappear into nowhere. And how we appear in the world, we have no control over. And everybody has a right to be here. Every, every single one of us appeared. What makes us distinct from one another is the fact that we are unique. She says we're only equal in the sense that we're not equal, right? In the sense that we are. Um, different from one another. And we disclose that difference through the way that we speak, through the way that we act and interact with other people in the world. And what part of what she's writing about at the end of the origins of totalitarianism, where she does come to really reflect on the human condition under tyranny and, and communism and totalitarianism is the loss of the ability to, to appear, to act, to create new beginnings, to, to speak, to think freely. It's that loss of, it's that loss of movement. Uh, after, you know, after she published, I'll give you one short anecdote. After she published um, Origins in 1951, Princeton offered her the first female lectureship. And it was being written up you know, in the New York Times, you know, Hannah Arendt, female, first woman. And she said, I won't take the position if that's how you cover it. I am not the exception woman and I am not the exception Jew. And I want to be known for my thinking was the, was the point, but she was insistent on that. But I want to ask you something about this kind of, because there's, in this idea of plurality, there's always something I found sort of, I had to sort of make sense I get it right, there's a step involved. So plurality doesn't mean we're all different in the world, but plurality means we are aware that everyone else also discloses themselves in their difference. And so I'm aware that you are appearing in the world from your position, just like I'm in a certain way also opaque to you or incomprehensible to you or cannot just be simply identified with. And that what we share in the world is the knowledge that every single one of us enters or steps or appears in her language into the world from a different place. So what we share is that we all inhabit difference for the others rather than what I share is I'm identified as male or I'm German or I'm white and all the other Germans, all the other whites. And that's what she said, I'm not like all the other women. I'm not in a group. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, 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 I think, I think that's right. I mean, for her, we are all, all different. I mean, because no two people will ever 
think alike and in that sense as well but in you know she says i i'm not a feminist i don't belong to any kind of women's movement just because i'm a woman i don't want to be conscripted into any movement based upon what I am. What I am doesn't necessarily dictate the terms of the way I think or my politics. In that sense, I've always read her there is quite close to Rosa Luxemburg's 1912 essay on, on women and suffrage. Um, and, and Luxemburg was very important for her, but as Arendt wrote in an early essay and as, as Luxemburg wrote, you know, woman becomes a political and economic fact. And we can reckon with economic inequality and pay inequality. Yes, those are politi political right. and economic fights. But I, you know, that's that's a very different argument than say than than making a claim to any kind of second wave feminism, which she which she very strongly uh, rejected. But I think this is really useful because there's something in Arendt that is, um, I've always been fascinated with these moments where she's not impatient, but dismisses something with a half a sentence. And she would have said something you just said, of course they are facts. Of course there's inequality among women and men. That is a given. But, this, but she wants to carve out a space where she could think through what is political identity, for example, and say, of course inequality exists. We have to deal with that somewhere else. And I think the essays are so powerful because they allow you to follow an argument and she can say, I'm going to put this aside. Mm -hmm. I'm saying it doesn't exist, but I'm saying yes. it, would, it would shape the discussion and turn it in the wrong direction because it would end up in another place. Yes. And it doesn't mean that it's not a discussion worth having. Right. One of my favorite examples of this is in a 1972 interview panel where Hans Morgenthau um, you know, says to her, you can't really believe in this distinction between political questions and social questions, can you? And she says, yes, I, I do. And, and, you know, let me give you an example. Housing. Everybody deserves adequate housing. This is not a political debate. This is a common sense fact. Now, the question of how one administers adequate housing mm -hmm. and how we actually move toward that it should be a question of economic distribution and of course it becomes a political conversation so she's not she's not dismissing those conversations but she does she she's a conceptual thinker in the sense that she's constantly drawing these distinctions which I think is what enriches her work and makes us attuned to different valences that we might not otherwise necessarily see when we're talking about something like truth in the public realm on a debate stage with presidential candidates or <laughs> the history of the lie and how it's been used instrumentally. Because it would be easy to just get caught up in the immediacy of a debate about lying in politics today. Well, or she would say either it's easy because, of course, everybody lies and we know that and she said it's not interesting. That's been the history of the world. Or we would say, well, the truth is better. And then she would say, why would this be the case? There's like Nietzsche and Beyond Good and Evil. She said, says, why do we elevate the truth and not fiction? Mm -hmm. And Harvard will do something like that and say, let's just not assume that the truth is really useful for politics. And in this essay, Truth and Politics, she ultimately says, 
it's pretty clear that the truth has a difficult, if not antagonistic relation to politics. So there she opens up a thinking where normally you would think, well, of course, as a politician, you shouldn't lie. And she says, well, slow down. Why would the truth be actually useful in the realm of politics where everything is about actually balancing out different interests and arriving at a possibility of living together in a, in a kind of society? So I, I'm kind of interested when, when you read her work, there's something I kind of enjoy those moments, but I also sometimes you sort of stop and you think, what? She <laughs> just puts this aside. And then you have to sort of make a note in the margin and say, we're putting this aside, as you said, not to dismiss it, but because it belongs in a different context. And she, she does this, she does this constantly. And it's, 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 I think there are a few different rhetorical moves happening in her writing. And I, I have always, um, I have always enjoyed those moments. One of my favorite is in her essay on what is authority. She made the first sentence is the better title for this essay might have been what was authority. <laughs> so she already rips the ground out. In truth in politics, she begins by saying that she's not going to um, talk about truth um, from the from you know a certain perspective and then we get to the end and then she says well actually that's what we've done or she says you know when I told you um, that factual as opposed to rational truth is not antagonistic to opinion I stated a half truth um, <laughs> so she's she's but that's also it's also reflective of the way that she's thinking and the way her thinking process appears in her writing as well as a conversation. She's having a conversation with herself and with all of these interlocutors that she's engaging and, and citing and recalling from memory. And so it moves. And in that sense, she's very, she's never writing systematic philosophy. She's not trying to get us to a concept. Um, in, in truth and politics, there very much is no the truth for her. Truth, you know, the beautiful final line of this essay, which I've always loved, and I'll, if I, I'll read it if that's okay, because it's just a sentence, and it's, I think it's to this. She says, conceptually, we may call truth what we cannot change metaphorically. It is the ground on which we stand and the sky that stretches above us. And it, it's just such a brilliant formulation because of, of course the ground and the sky are always moving. And yet we need the ordinary, we need ordinary factual truth or what you would call common sense um, truth as well to move through our daily lives, right? right? We, we, you know, we have to, um, put our feet somewhere. And the, the metaphor that she used for thinking was thinking without a banister. And it's the image of wandering endlessly up and down a staircase. There's nothing to hold on to there, but there is something to stand on. Um, yeah. But it's kind of interesting. And the, the, the essay is about how politics has a hard time with truth. And the, one of the reasons that she dismisses rational truth, scientific or mathematical, that we're not concerned with it for the sake of argument, then as you said, she brings it back. But then she says, 
the problem with factual truth had been that it becomes opinion, that I have an opinion, you have an opinion. And I mean, right now in America and in the world, we're living through this, that every opinion matters, right? And I can articulate any opinion I wish. And then that's equally valid. And she says, no, 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 no. This yeah. is actually, she said, that's always been a problem in philosophy. So she gives you a kind of history that is nothing new. And then she says something else happens with the fact that now there's not just another opinion, but a creation of a system of lies that undermines our ability to distinguish. Because she kind of says, well, you put these things out there and then you have to judge what's correct or not. There's a step involved. Yes. But it's really interesting how at the end of the essay, she says, the truth is that what we cannot change when the entire essay is concerned with that, it's totally malleable, it's fungible. People keep on changing the truth, even about the most known facts. And she brings up these facts who started yeah. a war and she goes, well, people used to not imagine that now you could rewrite all of history. And then she says, actually, we can imagine that someone could control all of the information in the world and write a new history. You know, and that's, that's even more haunting to hear that today, but you're, you're really, um, you know, capturing, I think, the spirit of the essay in that because she begins this essay with a footnote explaining why she's writing it in the first place. And she started keeping notes for this essay in 1963 in her thinking journals um, as she was processing the responses she received to writing Eichmann in Jerusalem because she she understood herself to be a reporter mm -hmm. and doing the work of Teoria, of, of theory of going, observing, and then reporting back her truth, what she had observed, what she had seen, the experiences she had understood it. And then she was confronted with all of these lies about a book that she had never written. People were accusing her of writing things that weren't in the text. And she really wanted to understand how it was that this phenomena could happen. So as you said, everybody has a right to their opinion and everybody has an opinion. And we certainly are living in a very dogmatic moment right now where every opinion um, carries some kind of claim to authority, it would seem. But Arendt says here that it actually generates more and more hostility. Um, and factual, factual truth is really what is at stake in this essay. And factual truth, she says, is very fragile. She thinks it's at risk of being lost forever. Um, because it's not as strong as mathematical truth, as two plus two equals four, other forms of truth that we can kind of take for granted, although I'm not sure we can take two plus two for granted. That's a bad cultural joke for But the factual truth always, she says always, um, I think it's on 233, 234, at least in my volume. But she says factual truth is always related to other people. Mm -hmm. It concerns events and circumstances in which many are involved. It, it is established by witnesses and depends upon testimony. It is only to the extent that it is spoken about, even if it occurs in the domain of privacy and it's political by nature. Um, and so she wants to keep factual truth and opinions, I think, apart. They're different realms. So 
truth and politics have never shared the same language. They've always been antagonistic to one another. Truth tellers have always stood outside the realm of politics and Socrates and Thoreau are examples for her in this essay. Um, but what, what will guarantee factual information in the future? I mean, when aren't published Eichmann, uh, all of New York Literary Society was summoned yeah. to essentially cancel her um, for, right. for writing the book. Um, it wasn't sold in Israel in 2000. Um, people really tried to suppress her account of, of what had happened. But that's kind of a useful reminder. I actually, you're reminding me that she wrote this in response to what happened to her. And in today's language, uh, we would say she was canceled because there was a concerted campaign with an edited book that was rushed out that basically criticized the book on several grounds. And one was it's historically inaccurate. And one was it's too sympathetic to the Nazis maybe. And the other one was it is blaming some of the Jewish councils as they were called, which were the people forced, coerced into administrative tasks for the Nazis, that some of the Jewish kind of leaders were responsible for something. Having touched on that, which was a lightning rod in the survivor community and in Israel, she said, well, there's nothing that is taboo from a historian's or kind of anybody's inquiry. We have to look at everything. Yes. And it's interesting that then she writes this essay and says, well, there's, of course, everything is always generated in the realm of public discourse or the market, she calls it, and people debate things, but that cannot mean that everything just becomes a mere opinion and anybody can interpret it. This act of interpretation is a secondary act, it seems. Yes, and, and, and judgment. And, um, and for her, involves the Kantian conception of having an expansive imagination, which she, she talks about here in relationship to the founding fathers, but the ability to go wandering in one's imagination. Mm -hmm. um, to put it in very kind of practical terms in this essay, she says it involves informing your opinions with facts by exposing yourself to as many opinions as possible. Um, and I think it also means doing the work, which is part of what she's demonstrating in the writing of this essay. It's not a self, you know, this is, it is a kind of personal essay, we might say. Yeah. But it's not, it's not, it's not in the way a personal essay would be written today. She wants to understand the history of truth in relationship to politics to understand what happens when truth appears in the public realm and propaganda ideology and dogmatic political opinions contest reality that destroys the ground that we stand on that's what destroys the relationship that we have to ourselves and thinking which allows us to judge to tell the difference between what's real and what's not real the biggest criticism of Eichmann was the use of her tone of, of the book, um, right. was her irony. Um, and she says, I can't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. she, was, she was with Brecht 
Um, you know, irony, laughter is a much better way to deal with evil than tragedy and tears. And she wouldn't apologize for it. So it would have been one thing to say, I don't like the way that Arendt wrote that book. Right. Um, you know, she wrote it in an ironic tone, but Gershom Sholem says that. Uh, and then he takes it a step further and he says, you know, you have no Havath Israel. You have no love of your people. And she says, you're absolutely right. I don't love a people that way. I and mean, I think this is the other part of what you were saying is that factual truth also requires that we see the world with all the good, bad, evil, suffering in it. And I think the ironic part of her stance there is that you actually have to love the world pretty much to be as critical right. and engaged as she was. Like, I think what you said that she's been, she was accused of being tone deaf in a way. She said, you don't understand. And then she actually said, oh, I understand how offensive I am to people, but, and in this essay, she says, the work of the poets, metaphorically speaking, is a transfiguration of grief into lamentation, of jubilation into praise. She basically says, unadulterated affect clouds our judgment and we yes. cannot access, and we cannot get to this ground of this is what happened and now we have to judge. And yes. in some way she wants to create a space. And I don't think she says there are no emotions, there is no grief. She's not a, a kind of, she's not um, immune to these feelings, but she says they must not overdetermine and overwhelm our capacity for judgment. There she's very Kantian. But yes. like in some ways, since you're teaching also of course on mourning, it's sort of this transformation of grief into lamentation for her, she said, irony, which is being distanced from your own speech in a way of having sort of like two meanings in one sentence, that was her way to step out of it. And I think there, I think this kind of unjust accusation was a misunderstanding of she wanted to clear the space to really understand what happened. And people felt you are actually insulting the memory of all the people who perished. Yes. Yes, and she's, um, if this works, I want it, you, you put it so nicely and I wanted to see if I could pull something up. I didn't expect it to be um, relevant <laughs> to our conversation, but I wanted to share with you, um, this is a poem actually that Arendt wrote. Um, and- Oh, that's she, right, you're editing her poems, right? Which I don't think I know actually, that's exciting. Yes, I, I, uh, I translated and edited wow. them. She says, were it not for the suffering scene transcribed into words, were it not for the thoughts twisted into sounds, for spoken in poetry, then sung in song, escaping from sorrow into what remains. Hmm. And so it's very, I hadn't actually connected this poem with this conversation, which you just, you just did for me. Um, but it is very much, you know, to observe suffering, to observe evil, she's not immune from the passions, but what she, but what she rejects is the kind of hyper introspective individualism that thinkers like Rousseau um, came to symbolize, which turns one away from the world. I mean, so grief, I am teaching a class on morning grief is so intensely private mm -hmm. it's so 
personal loss is, is transformative and something so deeply held. And that kind of, you know, to share that with another person, if you can at all, is a very private act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, but what you do with grief, whether or not grief can be mobilized into a kind of outwardly worldly productive energy is a different political question. And that's also her criticism of love, of at least petty bourgeois romantic love or the love of solidarity when she writes to James Baldwin and says, love cannot be um, survive the moment of liberation because this kind of beautiful love that you're talking about, the love of solidarity between oppressed peoples emerges under the conditions of oppression. Baldwin actually says she was right. <laughs> Maybe we could uh, but, actually, yeah. interesting to, so in this essay on truth and politics, mm -hmm. she's a historian has to turn the contingency of facts into something humanly comprehensible. And then in the second phase, as you said, then we can start to apply judgment, not judging in a simplistic way, but to think really what happened. And yes. the historian turns the contingency of facts into something like a meaning and the poet con transfigures, she says, grief into lamentation, yes. which is the, un the inarticulate expression of grief. It's what she calls poetry, I think is not necessarily many words, but pointing at the absence or the loss or the silence and giving shape to that. Yes. But I, since you brought up Baldwin, it's sort of the other part I've been really interested in. And she has this ambivalent and complicated relationship to American politics and race relations. And so she writes and just, I mean, it would take another couple episodes for our podcast, but, <laughs> but it's quite interesting. So she writes a very famous essay on Little Rock on the school desegregation, and she opposes the desegregation of schools because she yeah. says shorthand, I'm abbreviating too much, people are using their children for political ends and children should not be subjected to the realm of politics, which means fully mature agents or actors. And then to give Arendt all the credit, this is the one moment where I think she really stands corrected when Ralph Waldo Ellison writes her a letter and says, you don't understand what it means to be black in America. And she actually says, I didn't. Because yeah. I used my own experience of being bullied in school as a Jewish kid. And my mom said, go back and fight back. And yeah. she, so can you just say how these two things, because what you said, it's the transformation. They yes, I, they, they, they do. And in the biography, it was... It worked out so that because I was working through this not as I was writing and I didn't I wanted to give a portrait of Aaron I didn't want to give my take you know my reading of course but not my like right. oh she got this wrong how could she write you know that's not my job as a biographer but um, the the chapter on Eichmann is actually followed by the chapter where I discuss the Little Rock essay and I've been thinking about the relationship between um, the two and and what it means to have an empathetic imagination and to do to to engage in the work of, of judgment. Um, one of I think one of the interesting ties there in Arendt's life and work, and this is what we were talking about earlier, is that she does not avoid controversy. And one of the interesting facts, I think, about her essay on Little Rock um, is first of all, that essay was canceled too. 
<laughs> to put it in today's parlance, right. um, commentary um, actually ended up publishing a response to it right. before right. it was published a year later in Descent magazine because she had to pull it because it was too controversial. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was published with responses. Um, but she wrote a, a very short preface to the beginning of the essay where she says, I wrote this because I think that our public debate about segregation and race in America is too one-sided. It's being dominated by a kind of reactionary liberal political position and it needed to be pushed. Mm -hmm. And she wrote that essay intentionally to spark controversy. She wasn't afraid of it. She thought the conversation needed to be moved. So I think then there are two things there. One, you 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 summarize nicely. Um, you know, she begins from this point of departure of imagining herself in the position of a black mother being forced to send her daughter into this politically charged violent space and she says to Allison that that was a failure of her I think imagination as you put it but the part that she doesn't retract and that the opinion that she doesn't change is that the federal government cannot legislate away racism that segregation that equality cannot be legislated and that she I think toward the end of the essay, she says, this is gonna cause white backlash. This is gonna cause more racism. Um, and of course, that's a huge political debate. Um, yeah. Tons has been written on this um, in the past few years. I think in my own opinion, it's fair to say that Arendt was not attuned to the complexity of racism in American society. Um, she talks about racism in origins, and she in part compares slavery to concentration camps. She um, talks about the difference between race thinking and racism and tries to work through whether or not racism can be a freely held opinion or whether or not it's been so instrumentalized that it's become a dominant ideology so that nobody can have these kinds of um, discriminatory opinions freely at all anymore in the modern world. And I think one of the, to bring it back to Truth and Politics and Eichmann, one of the common criticisms of Arendt's reading of racism in America is that because she relies upon this Kantian conception of an expansive imagination, that she's limited in her own empathetic ability to appreciate the social and cultural and historical differences. But it's really a great example in a way that she takes this risk. As you said, in today's parlance, she would be canceled, which all the people worrying about cancel culture. Well, she published many books afterwards and wrote many essays. And the essay generated, as you said, generations of debate. Daniel Allen, Fred Moten, people have written extensively on this. Yes. Um, so in some ways, cancellation doesn't mean it's, as she would have said in this essay, Truth and Politics, she worries that certain things that are created by human beings can disappear from the world. They yes. Can, that is not what cancel culture is about. It's about something else, public shaming. She would have had a lot to say about that, but she may have even leaned into it and said, oh, well, 
with Eichmann, I think it was a very traumatizing experience for her at the same, because it was a betrayal by friends, but at the same time, there was a part of it where she then wrote, what is judgment afterwards? So this ex these experiences yeah. shifted her a bit. And I think what's interesting yes. that we're not sitting here saying, oh, the problem is she didn't have enough of an empathic imagination. She said the problem is that she identifies this in truth and politics, which I found stunning. She says Jefferson would have liked to impose equality on America like a mathematical truth. It's mm -hmm. fallible, you can't contest it, it's just there. And he realized a lot of political assumptions have to be imposed on people and they have to be coerced to agree with them. And that's why we're here today in America debating whether equality really means this or that. And Jefferson would have said, well, if I could make everybody just assume it's as true as two plus two equals four. Yes. He said that would be easier. <laughs> right. it, it would always be easier to impose right. certain certain values. I mean, but aren't really, really draws us back to the dance between fact and opinion, mm -hmm. to the necessity to engage with the world around us, to plant our feet in reality, to expose ourselves to as many things as possible so that we, we can judge for ourselves self-reflectively. And for some people, that's never going to be enough because she's not saying, well, some people, she, I mean, what it admits on the other side is that some people are going to be racist. Some people are going to be sexist. I, I think you're right. I think eradicate racism or sexism or bigotry. And do you think in Eichmann or in the origins, she comes up with, I'm trying to think, it's maybe the one absolute in her thinking where she says, what should never have happened and must not happen that some people decree that other people cannot exist in this so yeah yeah that's the those are the final pages of, of the text where she has this kind of she sits in the position of the judges and declares and she says this is something that must never be decreed by anyone so there's an absolute in her thinking here that no human being has the right to decree that someone else must not exist Yes, and that, that brings us back to the principle of plurality that she lays out in the human condition. Um, Eichmann's crime, so she draws a distinction between the need for a distinction, I'm talking about this, between moral judgment and political judgment. These are two different faculties, and again, Kant there for any philosophers who are following along. Um, but she renders her own judgment rejecting the court's judgment of Eichmann and says, Eichmann has to die because what he did, his crime against humanity was that he violated the fundamental principle of the human condition. Mm -hmm. He violated that fact of plurality that every single person who appears willy-nilly in the world has a right to be here. And just because we appear as black or Jewish or so on doesn't, allow for this kind of extreme violence and hate. And that is, that is a crime against the human condition in itself for her. I mean, and so she has, she has, absolute's a funny word. I'm not sure I wanna use the word absolute, but I'll say that she has an understanding of certain political principles that underpin the human condition, plurality, the fact that men 
inhabit the world earth and we make the world together um, that no two people who, who have ever been or ever will be will ever be the same we are all distinct from one another and that each new person who appears in the world is endowed with the miraculous ability to create new beginnings that we act into a future that we can't see and every time we act we bring something new into the world and totalitarianism is what destroyed each of those systematically by isolating men against one another destroying their capacity to think atomizing individuals in society i think this is also why i say you know the human condition which is about the preservation of freedom in the modern world and protecting spaces of freedom is not a hopeful book and today with the rise of the social which has so dominated our contemporary yeah. landscape it is i you know i we need to reframe the entire conversation because i don't see a way away from the dominance of social media technology today or the platforms on which speech is being regulated or political debate is being carried out or conversations about rights and equality changing. And Arendt was very, you know, writing in the 50s, she was attuned to the specter of technology, but um, did not live to see our moment. And so we have to rethink our moment from our newest experiences, I think as well. What do you think she would say? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually because her, you, her work is so much cited right now as being so relevant and applicable. And she had a kind of renaissance like James Baldwin or something. And I think, well, with some caveats because she is not a prophet and she would have been probably the least excited about being applied in any context. She said, this is not what I do, I just write. Uh, but as you said, she was also prompted by what happened every day. She looked at something, the war protests, the student protests, the large war trials. So, but what would she say about social media? Does it shift any of those major categories that she was interested in, of the private, the public, and the political? Well, I, 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 I call it shaking my aren't magic eight ball. <laughs> I don't, I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I can't say what she would have said, um, but she in the human condition which i think is the most relevant book to our contemporary political moment right now um she was she was very cons concerned is the wrong word i mean she thought that the rise of the social and modernity which collapsed the space between private and public life making intimacy nearly impossible destroyed our ability to move in the world um to act freely a life led entirely in public becomes shallow she yeah. says and most people today or at least many people today i don't want to universalize um live very public lives on social media and everything we do out in the world can be recorded and and posted and so the specter of the public is constantly present in our thinking. And what's so dangerous about that, to bring it back 
to thinking and storytelling and factual truth is that we lose the space for solitude. And even when we're alone, we're never really alone unless we turn off the internet and hide our devices. Right. <laughs> um, and then when, if you do that, um, you feel space clear around you. Um, but we have not just lost the space of, of privacy, technology has radically transformed the way that we experience the world. And if thinking moves from experience, then we have to think about how our thinking has changed in contemporary times and how it's being shaped by technology and social media platforms, which reify our choices and thinking into commodities that they market back to us. It's dystopian, I would say, in a certain way, but the space for thinking is smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think one of the most important questions that we can talk about is how to engage in technology in a way that doesn't completely destroy the possibility for a private life, that doesn't destroy solitude, um, so that we can nurture our solitude. Well, I think we'll, we'll leave it at, at that. It's kind of, I think what you're saying is that Arendt gives us some of the concepts to not be nostalgic and say they're gone, but she also, as you said, every act can recreate the world. So there may yes. be opportunities to recreate something. So she is never defeated by the world. As you said, she loved the world. So we'll stay with this moment, how to preserve solitude. And, um, I wanna thank you. I'm gonna draw a listener's attention again to your Twitter because you put a lot of really fascinating archival finds in advance of your book. It's Samantha R. Hill on Twitter. Then your website is Samantha Rose Hill. Um, and your book's coming out with a reaction books this uh, this year, 2021, correct? June, yes. So in June, so um, actually, <laughs> I have loved this conversation and there's so many other Me things too. I would love to ask you. I, would, I, I won't even give you all the notes. Like I have, I want to oh. know, what about <laughs> Revolution, her love letter to America? What about this? What oh, about, which, well, which I we have to continue the conversation. So maybe I think in June when your book comes out and we'll be sure on the Think About It website and uh, Twitter also to draw attention to your book. But I really want to thank you thank for you. taking time out of your schedule. So this is a um, conversation about Hannah Arendt with uh, Samantha Hill is a professor at politics at Bard College and the assistant director at the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities. Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure for me. This, this was fantastic. I actually am. I, I learned much more than than in many other classes on our end. So I'm really, oh. really <laughs> no offense to any of my other people. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really grateful. And I really, I also, how great for you to write a biography of this important book. I'm so excited for this book. It's been daunting. It's been a, it's been a daunting task. And they only gave me 55,000 words. Which was cruel. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, you know, but this is the daytime we live in, right? It's true. <laughs> That's true. It's true. All right. Thank you so much, okay. Samantha. It's really, been, really been nice. Thank you. Yeah, okay, bye. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. <laughs>